I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the beautiful St. George's Church in Bloomsbury on behalf of us all at the London Review Bookshop. Um, we're delighted to welcome Carla Ravelli here, uh, author of Reality Is Not What It Seems and Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, published by Penguin, to talk about his new book, The Order of Time, published by Penguin Alan Lane. Carla will be in conversation with Pedro Ferreira, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Oxford and the author of The Perfect Theory. It's a great pleasure to have both of our guests here this evening and I'd like to thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Please welcome our guests. Thank you so much. So thank you for coming. Um, I, think, I think I should briefly introduce you to the 2% of the people who don't know who you are. Um, Carlo is first and foremost a theoretical physicist. He's the father of one of the two main schools of quantum gravity, loop quantum gravity. It's a theory that's been around for 30 years, and we'll touch on that. Um, I would say he's eclectic and omnivorous in the way that he consumes fields and techniques to do what he does, and it's pretty remarkable if you read his papers, um, the way he works. Um, he's Italian from Verona, I think. Um, he, I think he went to the Liceo, and I think it shows in, in the way that you write. Um, he studied in Verona, and he got his PhD from Padua. Uh, he then moved to the US for 10 years and ended up back in Marseille. He is also a writer and a phenomenally successful one. Um, he has five books, but uh, one of them, seven, less, seven Brief Lessons in Physics, has done incredibly well. I think it's been published in 41 countries and has over a million, um, it's been bought by over a million people. Um, so let's start. Let's start the questions. And I'm going to ask you the following. When you were a young man, you got in trouble with the police. Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> we want to start from there? Yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> All right. I got in trouble with police more than once. Once because they found some marijuana on my little Italian scooter. And, but somebody else was driving. So I said it was him. He said it was me. And we sort of sneaked out of the thing. That worked. Yeah, that worked. Well, probably the police understood everything, but we were kids and they let the thing go. Um, and then I got in trouble because of politics. Those was, were the late 70s. Uh, I was involved with uh, dreams of changing the world fast and easy. Um, 
and uh, uh, I wrote a book. In fact, my first book was uh, on the revolution of the young people revolution in the 60s and 70s. Um, I spent some time in the University of Bologna between Verona and, uh, uh, and Padova, and there was a lot of political activity. I was involved in that. I was writing this book. The book was completely seen from the side of the students. The police didn't like it, and they tried to stop the publishing of the book. They stopped the printers. They... And in the middle of all that, I got uh, taken by the police and went through some rough evening in the police station and things like that. But then nothing serious came out of that. I mean, this was an incredibly febrile time in, in Italy um, with the Red Brigades and, you know, all this activity. And then Aldo Moro happened. Um, how, when you look back, when did you become un, uninterested in that type of activism? You know, how would you see yourself? When did the transition happen? Shortly after, I think there was this uh, period, uh, it was not just Italy, uh, it was all over the world, which... Um, lasted more than a decade in which this, uh, a good chunk of the, of the young people around the world from Czechoslovakia to Mexico, from Beijing, in fact, to, to Berkeley, uh, Paris, uh, Italy, in which there was this big dream of you know, changing rapidly the structure and making a world more just, more human, more peaceful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in various ways, a number of people of my generation was, were involved in that. Um, it ended pretty strongly in the sense that uh, it became clear that uh, you don't change the world so easily. And uh, for me, it was a big disappointment for part of my generation. The dream remained in a sense, but the hope of doing it fast died. And for me, this happened in the moment in which I got in love with science. So in a sense, it was... Uh, um, finding other way of doing revolutions, because that's what I like in science, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that replaced uh, one, one, one set of dreams with another set of dreams. That's what happened uh, in my university years. You, one looks at um, the great scientists, and you know, roughly one divides them in, into the, the tinkerers, the people who build you know, radios or look at the stars, and the other ones who theorize, who love the math and read the philosophy books and are interested in the deep concepts. And of course, there's a huge overlap between the two. What kind of person were you? I'm definitely on the side of uh, uh, not doing things from my hand, not looking at data. I, I would not be able to do what you do. Mm. Uh, I'm not capable. I don't have the, the skills for, for that. I belong... Uh, science is a big collective enterprise where Everybody brings its own piece of it. I belong to the people who try to uh, look at the big picture and try to say, well, that's what is missing. Uh, I might try to fill up this gap by ideas and by possibly using the mathematics to make this idea concrete. Mm. When you, you say that you moved away from politics and you became more interested in what, what, what was the thing that happened that really got you engrossed in, in well, physics? Well, there were two steps. Uh, one step was um, I was never very into physics uh, until quite late. I studied physics, but it was a, just I can do this or that, and I stumbled upon that. But then I started to study quantum mechanics 
and general relativity. I mean, you know, because you, you, you're deep into general relativity, your book shows the love of general relativity. So it's a, it's a theory that once you study it, and I studied by myself, I was not going to classes uh, on books, uh, you, you fall in love with it. It's an incredibly beautiful theory. I mean, you, you, your book is, the title of your book is a perfect theory, and it mm. is in a sense. And so, and it changed the view of the world. Suddenly, things look different in front of your eyes. So it was, a, it was, a, I was fascinated. I was captured, and I started to just get emerging into that. And then, I found in the Department of Physics an article by Chris Eicham, which you know well, I suppose, mm-hmm. you were at, were at Imperial, mm-hmm. uh, which was a review article on the problem of quantum gravity. Mm. It's a thick review article. You might remember these reviews this, of him. Is this in the Oxford Symposium? Or? It's not that one, but it was, uh, it was right. one of his big, uh, big, uh, big articles of review. And there was this explanation that there is this deep, open mystery, unsolved mystery, open, in the core of physics, which is the quantum properties for space and time. And I, I couldn't understand much of that article, actually, but it just blew my mind. I said, that's what I want to do in my life. Mm. And I have done that for the next 30 years. I mean, you were doing this in Italy, which has this incredible tradition in physics, you know, uh, Fermi, Majorana. Arguably, the 1970s was an okay period. I mean, you had people like Miani and Parisi, but where you were, did you have mentors or were you more self-taught? I mean, what was, how did you, how did you become a professional scientist? I, um, I was mostly, I studied by myself. I really, I, I did not have really mentors. I found a very good uh, thesis advisor who uh, basically said, do you want to do that? Go ahead. And I would chat with him once in a while, but he was mas- just following, not. Mm-hmm. Um, my first mentor was Chris Eicham. I came to London uh, um, with just some money of mine, uh, I, I wrote to Chris, and, and he was the big guru of quantum gravity at the time. So I wrote to him, I said, can I come? He said, sure. And I spent, um, uh, I don't know, a few weeks here. And it was the first time I really talked with somebody mm-hmm. um, who could guide me. In fact, he gave me wonderful indications, but no more than that. Um, later, I was a postdoc in Rome. I got to know Parisi, M- M- Kabibo, and, yes. and, and Miami, these people. They were very friendly, they were very open, and, uh, and, um, but uh, they were curious about what I was doing, but I never really worked with them. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, like you, I came to do quantum gravity. Well, I left Lisbon to do quantum gravity in the early 90s, 91, and I came to Imperial to work with Chris Eichem, um, the great man of quantum gravity. And one of the things I realized that it was that it was this intellectual graveyard for graduate students and postdocs. <laughs> in other words, people like us would go and work with Chris Eichem and they would end up unemployed um, with no career. And incredibly, uh, incredibly clever people were just languishing in these offices, you know, unemployed, trying to get jobs. And the kindness of Imperial College, they would keep them there for a while, but they would end up leaving. Why didn't that happen to you? Because I was lucky. <laughs> Everybody told, told that to me. When I, said, when I decided I want to study this, I would go ask professors of physics I would trust, and they would say, don't even think about that, do something else. But you know, when you're 20, you, just, you, you, you want advices so you can do the opposite. 
that's what you want. Um, and that's fine. And I, um, at some point, I, I did my PhD, basically, I didn't publish anything during my PhD. I just studied systematically everything I could uh, find on quantum gravity. I wanted to know everything that had been done. I just wanted to learn. And then I gave myself five years at the end of the PhD, just to myself. I said, in five years I do something that I consider good, I'll continue, otherwise I'll forget. But you were, un you were employed? Not all the time. Okay. No. Sometimes I would call dad, can you please send me <laughs> 100,000 liras for, which was nothing, eh? it's not how much. Just three pounds. <laughs> yeah, it's just three pounds. Uh, <laughs> and uh, actually, I, I, it was I, not easy, it was very I feel hard. I should interject here. Could you tell the audience what quantum gravity is about? In, in my opinion, quantum gravity is a very specific problem, which is that we have this fantastic theory, which is general relativity which is the, 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 the theory of gravity today that works very, very well, and the theory that tell us how is space and time, how space and time work. And this theory disregards quantum theory. So we know that space and time and gravity have quantum properties, but we do not have a theory um, that describes them. So there's a piece of the world that we just don't have a theory for. And that's important to know what happened in black holes, for instance, inside the black holes. Um, and it's a very concrete situation. We, nowadays, we know that the, the universe is full of black holes, plenty, small, large, very large. We see them, we see matter falling in, more or less, which is spiraling matter falling in. And we know very well what happened on their, the, the surface and what happened just inside the surface, we think we know. And then the, the matter goes in and then it goes to the center, we have no idea what happens. Mm -hmm. We have no theory whatsoever that tell, tell us what happened. So everything goes wrong in our equation mm. there. So we want to know what happened there. And I mean, the other example is if you wind back the clock and think of the very early universe. We, yeah, that's yeah. The, the other uh, quintessential example of what quantum gravity is good for. Mm. And again, it's a similar situation. We have a, a surprisingly good understanding of the history of the universe. I guess the wrote a book about the history of the yes. universe. A, and uh, it's, it's remarkable how well we understand it for, what, 14 billion years or mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. that. And then, if you want to go before that, um, we have no idea. And, and the situation is not that we know it was born from nothing. The situation is that we don't know what happened before the Big Bang, or at the big, just before the Big Bang. Why? Because we don't have a quantum theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. So somebody should find a quantum theory of gravity and you know, you're a 20 years old young man and I say, oh, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> and well, then you spend your life trying. Some people might argue that you did. So you came up with loop quantum gravity, which is one of the, one of the main, main approaches to quantizing gravity. Um, what, what is loop quantum gravity? Well, First, it's not just me. I mean, there's a number of other sure. people were involved. This morning was involved in that. Abai Ashika was involved in that. So I, I have to say, when I came to Imperial, one of the reasons I came to Imperial is I'd read Revelian's Smolin paper quite carefully. Uh -huh. And so I wanted to work on that. So, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But carry on. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it was Chris Isham, in fact, who told me um, there's this young Indian scientist in America. Uh, um, by Ashtikar, who has uh, reworked general relativity in a way that might make the problem easier. So I went to America to talk to him. Um, 
and uh, uh, I met Lee Smalling and together we uh, started working on Lee had some 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 remarkable steps had taken already some remarkable step toward what became loop quantum gravity um, well loop quantum gravity is a, is a mathematical theory that is supposed to do the quantum aspect of uh, of GR and uh, uh, quantum theory has to do with what happened in the small so um, light, we know a, a description of light as, as, uh, from Maxwell equations as a wave, um, but we know that in the small it has quantum properties, and the quantum properties is a simple way of visualizing it, then, which is uh, that they're photons, they're all these uh, particles of light. So uh, one of the key aspects of quantum theories is granularity. Mm -hmm. uh, light comes here, but it's actually like raining photons in some sense. Um, and if quantum, if, if, if space-time has quantum property, it means that space itself should have some granular structure, some very short-scale structure. And so loop quantum gravity is, is, is an attempt to give a mathematical description of these grains of space, mm. which are connected to one another and are, are not living in space. They, are, uh, they make space themselves. Mm. If you take space, you cannot cut arbitrary thin pieces of it, you get to the bottom, mm. uh, the, the, the units, the quanta of space. Mm. So loop quantum gravity is about those and how they connect to one another and how... It's not your fault. It's not, they're not <laughs> for me. <laughs> how they, how the dynamics of that. And uh, it's, um, it's a tentative theory. We don't have uh, evidence for it being right. Let me put it in the most positive way. We don't have evidence it is wrong either mm -hmm. for the moment. So it's, it's interesting. It's one of the two big theories. And when I say the two, I, there's loop quantum gravity and there's this other big approach, which is string theory, which we will get to. When you, you moved to the US in the 1990s, right, where the string theory is this juggernaut in theoretical physics. What was that like? Well, on the one hand, uh, I didn't care much. I was following, of course, because I was interested in the development of string mm -hmm. theory. I tried to keep up with everything that was happening. But uh, there was a community of people that was small and then was growing that were interested in this other direction. And uh, I thought it was good that we, the things develop. On the other hand, I felt uh, part of our community felt, um, how would I say, in a sense, unlucky. Because if it wasn't this explosion of string theory, more or less on the same time mm -hmm. in which loop quantum gravity was developing, mm -hmm. um, there would have been more attention in a sense. There would be more, well, all these particle physicists mostly. Yes. Uh, because the majority of people, not all everybody, but the majority of people who went into strings were particle physicists who were unemployed because there was nothing more to do with mm -hmm. particles. Um, so there was this large community, and uh, it took a lot of attention and, 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 and space, so we felt squeezed a little bit. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the radical left when I was young. I felt a little bit an outsider all through my life, and, uh, and I liked this position of outsider a little bit. I've always been comfortable mm -hmm. of not being the, the establishment. I guess at my age I am an establishment a little bit, but I still... Pretty much so, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I still pretend I'm not. So, so, so you moved to the US and, and the culture 
in the US, the scientific culture, I mean, we've both been there, is very different from here. It's pretty relentless. It's very much pushing your ideas, one of, you know, systematic publishing and, and grants, applying for grants. I mean, did you have time to do the kind of blue skies thinking that you'd really done while you were in Europe? For example, think about time. Yes, I did. Um, I got there with a faculty position, not as a postdoc. So I, I got there in a privileged position. There were aspects of the American way of doing science, in fact, the American way of life, that I liked a lot. The other side of this pressure is that there is interest in everything which is new. Mm-hmm. There is excitement. Europe is a place, when you, when you say, I have an idea, uh, people look and say, come on, it's certainly an old idea, and don't listen to you. And you have to scream, say, no, no, look, listen to me, listen mm-hmm. to me. America is a place when you say, I have an idea, 20 people start listening. Oh, maybe he has an idea. So it's, it's more open to that. Mm-hmm. Then they kill you more rapidly. Yeah. So, uh, but, but you get listened to. I like that. I felt uh, that there was more space for me than, than in Europe. One thing I did, I was in Pittsburgh for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Pittsburgh, there was a very good uh, uh, relativity group, Ted Newman, mm-hmm. um, Jenny, Jeff Winnicourt, and so on. But uh, there was a spectacular philosophy department, history of philosophy of science, um, especially philosophy of physics. Um, the best philosophers of science in America were in Pittsburgh, maybe still are in Pittsburgh. So, and it was next door. And I would spend a lot of time with mm-hmm. the philosophers. And for me, it was, uh, was wonderful, because uh, um, where I was in Italy, and even where I am now in France, I didn't have this direct communication with the philosophers, which was very, very good for me. I think if you want to do something like quantum gravity, you better talk, you better look at the large picture. Mm-hmm. And um, I would go every, once a week at these meetings in the philosophy department, and uh, they, the philosophy of science there were particularly interested in general relativity, so they were happy that the scientists talked to them. And uh, we developed a very good uh, relation, and for me it was a great way of, of growing. I miss that. Then what made you go back to, come back to Europe? If it was... Uh... Nostalgia for all quite soft, sweet Europe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is... England, I don't know. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> um, or maybe we should. And, um, and then, but did things change there? So you say you had less contact with philosophers. You moved to Marseille. I assume you have a CNRS position or something like no, that. No, I have a university position. You, so you have to do a fair amount of teaching. I got some teaching relief, pretty heavy ones, so I didn't have much. Right. There's something called IUF, the Institut Universitaire de France, which is a way to be in the university but not having to teach much. Very good. Um, and what did you, how, how, you know, how do you feel it's different here in Marseille? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's great to be there, but in terms of students and postdocs and being, being in, the, in, in the community? Um, well, it's, look, you work in one of the great places where everything happens and there's a lot of intellectual activity and, um, you have some of the best students of the world. Uh, there's nothing like that in Marseille. Um, but uh, in exchange, uh, I have an infinite amount of space. I can do what I want. Mm-hmm. I have my group. I have 
being able to hire young people. The sun is shining all the time. <laughs> the sky is blue. Yep. The water of the Mediterranean is green and transparent. And, and the seagull right. flies. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't change for No, no, no. no. <laughs> I'm sold. I'm sold. I mean, it's... Um, uh, and, you know, uh, somehow, at some, I think at some point in your career, you, you don't need people around you all the time. What, what I mean, I, I have very good uh, PhD students that they come from because they want to stay in the group. Um, I guess what I mostly miss there, uh, which is what you have easily, is the, the kind of undergraduate and graduate students that come in places like Oxford and Cambridge, which mm -hmm. are you know, the best around and uh, you can talk to directly. Mm -hmm. That I don't have. Mm -hmm. um, I hope they're not listening, my students. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've written a number of books, but I think we should really focus on the last one. Um, and if I were to summarize it, I would say, you say, forget what we know about time and rethink it from scratch, basically. Um, uh, so what do we believe about time? You know, what, what are the things that we need to forget about time? Many, at different levels. So this is, this is one way of describing time. Um, there is a present. Right now the universe is in some state. And then there was uh, um, five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, one hour ago. Um, so there is this long past line and there is a future. So the, we can think of time this long single line uh, that stretches along which we are moving. In fact, the entire universe is moving. And the past is very different from the future. The universe as a whole shifts in time. Basically, everything I've said about time is false, is wrong. Um, you use the expression that we believe that time flows and we should stop really thinking about it that way. Yes, we should stop thinking at physics at the fundamental level uh, in terms of universe flowing in time mm -hmm. um, altogether. The distinction between the past and the future is far more complicated than uh, uh, just a single flow. Time passes a different speed depending on where you are, how, how you move. So we cannot, the, the, the time um, interval between two events depend on how you go from one to the other, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, we have an everyday notion of time, which is not wrong. It's just good for us at our scale, in our um, environment, and uh, at the regime of in which we live. But it doesn't extrapolate for big things or for small things. And more than that, when, when you try to do quantum gravity, uh, and here we enter in a domain which is less clear, the, you lose even more about time because uh, uh, there are the quantum fluctuations, there's the granularity that I mentioned before that regards time as well. So when you try to write the fundamental equation of quantum gravity, it turns out um, that, or, or better, it seems to turn out that uh, the best thing is just to forget time altogether and write equations about variables and how they change one with respect to another. And there's no way of pick up one variable, which is a time variable, and to describe the universe as evolving into that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. 
Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You can do that, but it's just in approximations, not at the fundamental level. So the more you study it, the more our usual uh, everyday notion of time just breaks down and, uh, and, and you lose it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first part of the book is, uh, is this uh, losing time step by step, which I still would distinguish in, in two parts. One part we understand very, very well. Everything which is related to special relativity, general relativity, mm-hmm. uh, a big amount of what is related to um, thermodynamics. Uh, these are not controversial things. We know it works. We know it works. And uh, it's, uh, every physicist would agree. But remarkable, people outside physics don't know much about that. Many of the simplest thing. I mean, uh, you and I are working in relativity. I've been working for, for us. It's completely obvious that up there time goes a little bit faster than down here. Mm-hmm. But for most people, this is still surprising, in spite of the fact that it's decades that we know that mm-hmm. for good. So there's a part of, of of time works different than what we think it was work uh, usually, which is very solid. But then there is a part, which is the quantum gravity part, which we're not sure about, but the indications are even stronger um, of the, the impossibility of generalizing our, our com- common uh, notion of time. That's the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the question is that, first we have to learn how to think without time, but then we have to understand what's time for us, and that's the second part of the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean... Do you think you could tell us what you, you I mean, the, the interesting thing, the really interesting thing is you describe time as this emergent phenomenon. What do you mean by that? Could you give us a kind of a description of what you mean by that? How does it work? How does time come out from the fabric? It, it, it comes out um, step by step. I think the, the main message of the book is that we get confused if we think that time is a, a single thing. Either there is time, the time of we'll use in our everyday life, or there's no time. Um, that's not the way of understanding the universe. At the fundamental level, uh, in a theory like the theory of quantum gravity in which I work, there's no time variable. They're just events. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're happenings which are not ordered in time. 
They're just like a, a network of events loosely connected to one another in, mm. in, in, in some sense. You use a good analogy, which is family trees, where you have family trees is funny a, orderings. And yeah, that's, that, that's, that's an analogy for... Uh, see, what, one of the aspects of, of our understanding of time is that there's a future, there's a past, and in between there's just a, there's an instant, now. And uh, we have learned now it's a century from, in fact, more than a century, 110 years mm. since uh, uh, ICE's special relativity paper, that between the future and the past, there's, there's an in-between. There's a number of events which are neither future nor past. So um, given something that happens now, this, the second uh, snap is later. So we can say some events are later and some events are before, but then there are plenty of events which are neither later nor before. So mm -hmm. the event of the world have a structure which is not ordered, mm -hmm. but is partially ordered. And uh, um, an example of a partially ordered structure, uh, family trees. I mean, we have uh, descendants, our children, grandchildren, we have ascendants, mother, father, grandfather, and, and so on. But then there are plenty of people which are neither descendants nor, yeah, they're the sort of on the side. And each of us has this future and this past uh, uh, group of humans. So if you imagine all the humans of, of, uh, that have ever lived, uh, each, each one has a sort of cone uh, of uh, a descendants, ascendants, and that's the structure of space-time in, 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 in relativity. Mm -hmm. It's very much similar. Um, so this is uh, one of the aspects that, in which temporality uh, differs from our everyday uh, mm -hmm. intuition. But there are many, there are many. We lose, uh, for me, the most striking that follows from that is that uh, in generativity, we learn that the idea, the, the idea of a present all over the universe, it's an approximation, it is not, there's no way of saying what's happening now in a distant galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, because time goes locally, it doesn't go uh, globally. And this is very strong, because we have this idea that reality, what is real is what is real now. But if there's no now, what is real? Mm -hmm. um, we're confused by our own words. Mm -hmm. We have to find new ways of talking about this, uh, these things. I mean, one of the nice things that... Um I mean, your interest in philosophy and philosophers' shows, obviously, but you have this, um, you mentioned Kant, and you mentioned this very interesting thing. You say that there's something special about time as, as opposed to, to, to space, and that time, there's something internal about time as opposed to, to space. And you, you say Kant, he, he observes that whereas space is shaped by external sense, that is to say, by a way of ordering things that we see in the world outside of us, Time is shaped by our internal sense, that is to say, by a way of ordering internal states within ourselves. And I, you know, I find that very striking, and I think it appeals, ex I mean, there's, there's something quite physical about that statement. So, okay, so you, 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 you raise our concept of time to the ground, and you build it up, but as you said, we, the, the, the usual ideas of time work very well. The general relativistic concept of time, the special relativistic, the thermodynamic, all of this works really well. How do you rebuild these things from your, your proposal? Have you done that yet? Can you do that? 
I think it's a, it's a complicated rebuilding um, with a lot of steps. And I'm not sure we can cover all of them, but uh, some are clear, some are not very clear yet. Um, for instance, we know that there are these quantum properties that um, make time fluctuating and very ill-defined in the small, but it's only in the small. So we're talking about uh, time intervals which are incredibly small. But we don't see them, so once we uh, sort of average over them, we look at them at a, at a large distance compared to this granularity of space-time, just forget about them, and part of the story disappears. We recover a part of our usual way of thinking, uh, of thinking in time. There is a part of the story which has to do with thermodynamics and statistics and statistical mechanics, entropy, which is one of the most fascinating parts of the story. We, one of the aspects of time that for us, for, us is, for us is the most characterizing is the difference between the past and the future. Right? I mean, space, right and left, are more or less the same. If I turn around, mm -hmm. just... But past and future are very different. And uh, it came as a surprise for physicists that the basic equations of the world do not make this distinction, no. right? Um, so where does distinction come from? Uh, the, the Newton equation don't make this distinction. The Einstein equation don't make this equation. Maxwell equation don't make this distinction. So where, why is the past different from the future? And it has to do with heat and temperature and thermodynamics. And, uh, and this we know very well, this we're sure about, because uh, every time there's a distinction between the past and the future, there's heat. Um, if I throw this, it stops. Mm -hmm. If I take a movie and I see it moving, starting by itself, I say, no, come on, it's, it's wrong. No. So this phenomenon distinguishes the past from the future. It can happen this way, but not the other way around. And in fact, there's heat, because the reason it stops is this friction, and it heats up this thing here. Mm -hmm. um, if I see a ball rolling without friction, and I take a movie and it go backward, it's perfectly uh, coherent and, and, and with our understanding of the world. There's no friction, no heat, past is equal to the future. So the, the distinction between past and future has to do with heat. And heat has to do with disorder, because heat is the motion, the disordered motion of the molecules. So we, and, and, and the, the future is different from the past because things get disordered. And so far we understand well. But why they were ordered in the first time, mm -hmm. that's we don't understand. And uh, I, part of the book, which I think is the hardest part of the mm -hmm. book, mm -hmm. I suggest an idea which I like a lot, which is that order is perspectival. Mm -hmm. Namely, order in the eyes of the people who, or the person who look at, at order, right? When, you, um, when your child put everything in disorder in your room, uh, for him, it's much more ordered uh, uh, what for you look totally disordered. Mm -hmm. um, ordered is not in the things. It's in the relation between somebody looking ordered and, and, and the things. So I think that one not well understood part of temporality has to do with this perspectival relation mm -hmm. between uh, uh, the complexity of nature as a whole 
and a part of nature which are us, which interact with only a piece of this, um, of this complexity. It's not an easy story, and I try to, and it's not a fully understood story, and I try to dis disentangle it and mm -hmm. talk about that in the book. Another part, which is the sense of flowing, which is not physics, but I think is central for understanding time, is the fact that when we think at time, we really think about our memories. Mm -hmm. And that's an intuition that goes back to St. Augustine, uh, is very much in Husserl. Uh, the the philosophers have, have, have gone through that. There's a time of physics, but our time is not really the time of physics. It's related to the time of physics. Um, when we think about time, we think about yesterday, but it's the memory of yesterday. Or, In fact, for us, time is a little clearing in the forest mm. in the event of the world, the ones we remember. And maybe the anticipation we have about, we know what's going to happen tomorrow a little bit, probably, or the day after, and, uh, and in October, and in November, the Brexit negotiation, mm -hmm. and something else. So we have this span of time that we race somehow. Maybe we can, we, we're physically, we go all the way to the Big Bang, yeah. but then it's darkness, and mm -hmm. then the future is darkness. So when we talk about time, we are really talking about what is in our brain that is connected to past events and to future events. So we're talking about the structure of a brain, not about the structure of nature. I talk about Proust in the, mm -hmm. in the book uh, uh, a, a lot, because Proust, uh, Marcel Proust, the, the French writer, has this fantastic novel, which the title is, uh, uh, I don't know the, the English title, Looking for the Remembrance, Lost... Remembrance of Time Past. Remember of the Time Past, La Recherche de Temps Perdu. Um, which is, in fact, is, the original title is uh, Looking for the Lost Time, the, the, the exact translation. And uh, it's a huge book, right? It's a huge novel, 500,000 pages, I don't know. It's a huge novel. It's a collection of books. And uh, it's not really about events. It's about the memories which are in the head mm -hmm. of the main character, whose name is presumably Marcel, mm -hmm who slowly remembers everything. So it's this huge story, and Proust is completely explicit in saying, I'm not talking about facts, I'm talking about what is in the head of Marcel, mm -hmm. right? And in a sense, and, and Proust goes sometimes explicitly reflecting about that, and he says that past and time is our mental bringing together these mm -hmm. memories and ordering them. Of course, this is related to the time of physics, but it's not the same thing. And the sense of flowing, it's related to our, the, what we make about these uh, memories and anticipation. Our brain um, is a machine that uh, essentially what it does is collect memories and uh, computes use them to constantly compute the future to, to decide what to do. So it's a time machine. Mm -hmm. It's a machine for making time. So you see, for, to, to understand what is time for us, we have to go from quantum gravity to thermodynamics to psychology to neuroscience, exactly. and perhaps even literature will tell us something about all that. So I think we've run our time, and this is what it's like. This is what the book is like, just so for those of you who haven't read it, and we should open the floor to question. Um, thank you for such a stimulating conversation. Um, I've heard it said that one reason quantum gravity can be a bit of a professional graveyard is that 
uh, there's almost no evidence one way or the other for, for the f theories that are in favour. And I just wondered, uh, and maybe this is a question addressed to both of you, whether you had any hope of um, any actual data or evidence in support of your theory in your lifetime. Data? Things have changed uh, in the last years, in the last decades, I would say. When I started, the, the, the first thing you would learn about quantum gravity is that there are no data. This does not necessarily deter a theoretical physicist because, no, come on, um, Copernicus had no data, no new data. I had plenty of data, but they had the same data as Ptolemy. Uh, Einstein, for generativity, essentially had no data. I mean, yeah, he used mercury, but it's, he didn't really use mercury. It was a, um, and so on. So there, was, there, there have been advanced, major advances in, in, in theoretical physics without data. So the idea of quantum gravity was, well, we don't need data. We are in the perfect situation, the same situation of Einstein and Copernicus. We have two theories that work very, very well. These are our data. And we have to find a way to, to bring them together. But things have changed. And uh, now we don't have any direct quantum gravitational measurement. But we were just chatting about that uh, short ago. Uh, one of the way of doing quantum gravity is to break Lorentz invariance and my work. So a fantastic uh, program of observations for checking whether Lorentz invariance is broken was started about 10 years ago, and Lorentz invariance is not violated. So the idea that quantum gravity could be solved by breaking Lorentz invariance has lost a lot of interest because uh, we have measurements of uh, Lorentz uh, preservation at the Planck scale and, 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 and below. That's one example. Another example is that uh, a large number of theories that modify general relativity for various reasons uh, um, have been killed by recent observation of the um, uh, gravitational waves and electromagnetic waves coming from the, uh, the two neutron star uh, mergers. Pedro worked on, uh, on, uh, on that. And a third example, which for me, uh, maybe nobody would agree, but for me is a, is a major one. There is a string theory and there is a big area of research that think that quantum gravity requires supersymmetry. Many researchers in that field were convinced that supersymmetry was going to be revealed at CERN and existed at some, at some energy. Uh, they were wrong. Supersymmetry is not that energy, which counts as a, not as a disproof, but takes away credibility of some, makes something less probable. So things are happening. And uh, I'm particularly excited of uh, tabletop experiments that should be probably done in the next years in which uh, uh, some superposition of space-time may be uh, implemented in the, I think, I, I didn't think it was possible a few years ago, but now I think it's possible. So we are learning about the world. We're learning a lot about the world. Some directions of research uh, have lost credibility because of um, uh, measurement and uh, nature is talking. Perhaps I'm going a little bit outside of the frame. I'm an artist who is interested in uh, philosophy, so. Can one be time? 
can one beat time? Uh, what I'm talking about specifically is what uh, 12th century founder of uh, Soto Zen in Japan called um, Dogen Zenji talked about Uji in Japanese, which means more or less translatable as existence time or being time. And uh, personally, I think, uh, very much confused with a form of Heideggerian idea of being, which has got nothing to do, I think, what he was talking about. Wait, so being wait. time, yes? Being time. Can, we be, can one be time in a, in a very contingent, very embodied sense? physical sense, experiential sense, can one be time? And therefore this is within the context of a more uh, Buddhistic interpretation of time. Um, uh, I, was, I was surprised by um, the extraordinary different ways in which the problem of time is approached uh, in uh, uh, different areas of philosophy. Um, having spent a lot of time in, 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 in Pittsburgh uh, and, and, and also by, by instinct, I, uh, I got close to analytical philosophy. And uh, for me, the best philosophy book on time was Reichenbach and uh, uh, time as is described by the natural science. But then, of course, there is all the continental Heidegger world, uh, uh, which is a huge reflection about time, okay? I mean, Heidegger is, uh, is talking about time all the time. And uh, where um, time is where the, the universe is, the, the reality is given to us, and, uh, and, and it's more than that. And I, I struggle to understand whether um, uh, there is some profound incompatibility between these ways of, of, uh, of thinking. And I think in writing this book, I realize that um, they're just talking about different things, profoundly different things. And uh, there's a lot of known communication between these two worlds, but not because, uh, not for profound disagreement, for addressing different problems. In a sense, in, in the book, what I'm trying to say is, look, time is not one thing. The time of the uh, physicist it's, uh, it's something that makes sense by itself. The clock time, the time of our experience, it makes sense by itself, but they're not exactly the same thing. Because we are not because we are outside the natural world, but because we are complicated natural things, which are made by uh, a, a biology, a psychology, neurons that interact, that work in a certain uh, manner. And uh, the two perspectives uh, are not necessarily in contradiction to one another. Certainly, uh, let me take your question uh, by interpreting one as us, okay? Uh, we are time to a large extent because what makes us as a single unit, what makes our identity is uh, certainly we are perspective on the rest of the world, but even more, we are memories. Uh, we, what am I? I am the memory of everything that being in the past until now, including what I said 10 minutes ago and I sort of remember about it. So we are hold together by memory. And we live in time. There's no doubt that our own way of living is, is, is living in time. We cannot think about ourselves in a non-temporal perspective. But that's because what we are as a 
brain that compute things. That's what makes us. So time makes us to a large extent, and I think this can be made sense in a naturalistic perspective without the need of starting from a different kind of philosophy. That sort of intuition, um, I think it's, uh, it, it, it becomes understandable. I, I really like the way that you explained uh, the distinction between past and present in relation to memory, although I don't think anybody's mentioned history yet, although that is a social construction, of course. Um, so I understand the, uh, the, the order-chaos uh, relationship, and do I understand, therefore, even though our understanding of history might be chaotic, it's ordered because it has happened, no matter how chaotic we may think it to have been. But then, with both memory and history, we can change our view. So does that then change the physical structure of the past? Or is that the, what you've just explained about needing to separate, or rather find the linkage between those two? Does that um, make sense? Yeah, but it's a long, it's, it's a long, uh, it's a long story. Let me just answer with a small, uh, a small uh, uh, answer, which is the following. I'm not really answering your, your, your question because it's long and complicated, um, and I'm not sure I can answer. Uh, but I want to add one piece of confusion, perhaps. There's a marvelous uh, short paper by Einstein. I don't know how well known it is. I think it's not much well known. No? No, no, in which he also Einstein noticed that um, one of the consequences of quantum mechanics, which is well known, is that if you know the present, you cannot predict the future. The present does not determine the future. And that's the uh, indeterminacy, uh, non determinism, indeterminism of quantum mechanics. Every books talk about that. But Einstein noticed it's also true toward the past, not just toward the future, because quantum mechanics is completely time symmetric. So if you know totally the present, if you know everything you can know, look around and get, gather all the information possible, the past is undetermined. So there is an intrinsic limitation in our knowledge of the past, uh, which comes from physics, even from physics. Right, so it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's symmetric. So there is a sense in quantum physics in which it, one cannot say that the past is determined, has happened, period. I think we have to wrap up here. Um, thank you, Carlo. That was great. And the, as I said, the book is exactly like this. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Pedro. Thank you very much. Thank you all of you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.